Hello, I'm Raymond. And I'm Samantha, and we're from the Multifaith Chaplaincy at Bates College. The Multifaith Chaplaincy warmly and creatively nurtures the religious, spiritual, secular, and searching communities at Bates College to encourage students to live into fullness and build deeper connections. We value curiosity and create spaces for conversation, contemplation, and connection. We've named our podcast Buen Camino, or Good Journey in Spanish, because we'll be talking to people from the base community about their personal stories, the paths they've taken, and where they found meaning along the way. Our guest today is Stephanie Kelly Romano, a professor of rhetoric, film, and screen studies at Bates College. She is a renowned teacher and active public scholar who is frequently asked to speak on rhetorical criticism, feminism, alien abduction, and conspiracy. Stephanie sat down via Zoom with her multi-faith fellows, Francis White and Khadijah Qureshi, to discuss social pressures and unhealthy habits, overcoming low expectations, and the joy she has discovered through a lifetime of recovery. Hello, beautiful listeners. This is Hadija. I'm a multi-faith fellow. Hi, I'm Frances White. I'm a senior and a multi-faith fellow, and I'm really looking forward to being here today. So today we have a really special guest, and I'll let her introduce herself as well and talk a little bit about herself. I am Stephanie Kelly Romano. I've been at Bates since 1999. I teach classes on politics, rhetorical criticism, feminism, alien abduction, and conspiracy. And I'm just really glad to be here. I think it's going to be fun. It's pretty rad. So we're just going to start out by asking, what was your childhood like? Well, I grew up just north of Boston. I grew up in Winchester, Massachusetts, and I am the older daughter of two. I have a younger sister. And, you know, my dad was a photographer in our little town and my mom stayed at home and helped him with his work and also had some other jobs over the course of her lifetime for different contractors in town. And I don't know, like I grew up, I grew up quote unquote on the wrong side of the tracks, affluent town, and we were not particularly affluent. And so I think I grew up very much aware of what I didn't have and ways that not having things made me inadequate, right? Like I internalize that. Right. Um, so yeah, but I mean, it was generally a good little upbringing, you know, hysterical, dysfunctional, insane, but fine. <laughs> and you have a really interesting background. So do you mind sort of going into um, what academic life was like and maybe even some of your religious background? I think a lot of people might be able to relate to it. Oh, yeah, sure. So my mother had been a nun, right? Like I grew up Catholic. I grew up, we used to have to go to church every Sunday and we used to have to bring home the bulletin and we would get quizzed on like what the sermon was about and all this kind of stuff. And so I, I was brought up pretty religious. My sister actually went to Catholic school. And in, in terms of my background and education, when I was a junior in high school, we had all those pre-college meetings or whatever. And my high school guidance counselor told me that I wasn't college material. 
And like in her defense at that point in my life, I was already drinking and smoking a lot of weed and not very present for school. So I probably wasn't actually putting my best foot forward and maybe I wasn't college material. But what that meant at the time was they switched me out of all the pre-college classes into all the vocational classes. So I started taking typing and woodworking and metal shop and all that kind of stuff. And, um, you know, didn't think that I was college material because a grown-up told me so, you know, a grown-up with many degrees told me I wasn't college material. So that's kind of my background and how it was, you know, now it's just such a trip that I'm a professor at Bates College when I couldn't have gotten into Bates College when I graduated from high school. I, be, I barely graduated from high school and I couldn't have gotten in. So it's been kind of a windy, windy little road. Wow. How do you feel that that advice and receiving that advice from your teacher impacted your academic life? And even looking back on it now and reflecting, um, how do you think it impacted the way you took care of yourself then? You know, hindsight is a beautiful thing, right? And hindsight, you know, we can make such sense of things in hindsight, you know? And so I could very easily tell you that that caused me great resentment and I started drinking and doing drugs as a result of that. And I was on the outside, but I honestly don't know that if she had told me, if you just buckle down your college material, I don't know that if she had told me that it would have changed the trajectory of my life. So I don't know. I know that when I think about it now, you know, I believed her that I wasn't college material and, and she certainly wasn't the only factor or the only thing in my life telling me I wasn't good enough. You know, I seem to be getting that from all directions, but yeah, it just kind of made me settle. Right. I think a lot of times we just settle, we fall into a comfort zone and I just settled. So you talk about your trajectory and how it might not have changed based off of what people had told you or what advice they had given you. But how do you think the certain path that you took and your experience and skills and vocational training has informed your teaching and experience today? That's a compliment. You guys ask hard questions. <laughs> well, I think it absolutely has impacted my teaching, right? Okay. So I didn't think that I was college material. I didn't think I could go to college. I didn't. I got a job in a law firm. I was a receptionist and I'm a little bit dyslexic. So taking down phone numbers is not a good job for me. And so there, <laughs> I wasn't doing particularly well either. But eventually, I started taking classes at a community college, and I had an English professor. And my English professor told me I was great. And then I started taking classes about law. I started taking like constitutional law and pre-law classes because I thought I wanted to be a lawyer. And that teacher, Michael Brown was his name. And he actually absolutely made me believe in myself more. He would say to me, Stephanie, why, why aren't you doing this? Stephanie, why aren't you doing this? Stephanie, why aren't you doing this? Why are you doubting yourself? When I would say undermining things in class about like, well, I don't know, but I think he'd be like, no, you do know, you know, this isn't what you think. This is, you're right. Just say it. And so I think that those kind of experiences definitely influenced 
my teaching today, right? I see primarily women identifying students in the classroom saying all kinds of qualifiers to undermine, oh, I feel, or I think, or maybe, or behaving, you know, performing in particular ways that are usually gendered that undermine their intelligence, right? Because of what we expect. And so I think that it's definitely impacted me in that I call people out. I don't, you know, do it in the middle of class, but I will absolutely pull people aside and say, listen, why are you, why, why do you say you're sorry every time you walk in the room? Oh, I'm sorry. Why? You're not late. You're not doing anything. You've just walked into a room. You don't need to apologize. You know, when you tell me your answer to the question, you don't need to say, I think, or I feel just say it, man. Like just (laughs) say it. Um, And similarly with, I've had some instances with, with male students who will interrupt and over talk, you know, and, and I've had to pull some of them aside and say, listen, you're doing this. And many times they don't know, and they're horrified. And, you know, it's, it's, it's always interesting to watch kind of how that manifests in the class. And then I say, watch your other professors, see what's going on. You know, why is it that you feel okay to call me Stephanie, but you call Professor Nero, Professor Nero? Like, what's that about? Yeah. Um, so I think that all of my awarenesses about those things have carried through into the classroom and what I teach. Absolutely. And you talk about this idea of believing in yourself and doing. How do you feel that this believing has changed your life, specifically in thinking about spirituality and the topics in which you teach, like conspiracies? So the way that me thinking about those things, especially about my spirituality. So when I was growing up, I was Catholic. I had a very specific image of a God, right? It was a white dude with a clipboard in the sky. And there were these seven deadly sin things. And they were looking on the clipboard and like God was watching me to see whether or not I was behaving, you know, like kind of Santa Claus, naughty or nice (laughs) stuff. But because of the way that I was behaving in my alcoholism and drug addiction, I did not believe that I was stacking up any too well when it came to the morality kind of of God and the religious aspects of my life. But eventually, after a lot of pain, unfortunately, you know, I came to believe in more of just like a divinity that is in me and that is part of me and that is part of and connected to everything else. Right. So like, I believe that there is a force in the world. And sometimes like when you're with your friends, you can feel it. If you engage in meditation with other people or prayer with other people, you can feel that like synergy, that force that is bigger than just the sum of the individual parts. And so that energy is what I call God. Right. And, and so now today I recognize that that energy is in me. Like I am that energy. And especially in terms of like intuition. So oftentimes I will go to do something and just in the back of my mind, right? I'll think to myself, this might not be the smartest thing you've ever done, right? I'll have just that, that momentary hesitation. And I believe that that is that energy of the universe, that divine energy that is also part of who I am because whatever it is I'm contemplating doesn't necessarily honor my highest self. And if I go ahead 
in spite of that feeling, usually it causes me or someone else pain. It is a learning experience. It was not a good idea, but you also have to, I have to do that, right? Like I don't, I don't learn things by listening to other people's experiences. Unfortunately, you know, I learn through pain. So I think that my spiritual beliefs in terms of like this divinity thing and this honoring of the highest self, I think that is all part of everything we do, right? So with my students, and I mean, students at Bates, they're smart. You know, you all know how to play the game. You know how to write to an assignment. You've, you've all, you're all the best and the brightest of wherever it is you came from. And that comes from your head right? That comes from your intellect and from your shrewdness, from your ability to size up a situation and to perform appropriately or accordingly. And I guess what I try to do when I'm teaching is get people to kind of get in touch with their divinity. I mean, that sounds kind of cheesy and I've never thought about it this way, but like get in touch with that creative energy that will compel them to be great. Because I think that I think you can only get so far with your mental faculties, but if you can kind of get into your intuition and your inner strength and your kind of inner peace, then that's when you, that's when you make great things. That's when you think of great arguments. That's when you envision amazing projects or whatever. So. I think I try to get students to not be so safe and not always just do everything that's in their head. It's like, what fires you up? Like what gets you going? And then how do you, how do you follow that? You know, how do you take one step in that direction? Incredible. And I think Francis touched on this a bit, but you do teach conspiracy theory and conspiracy rhetoric and on this topic of religion. I'm sure you have some insight on this theme or topic of totalizing rhetoric. And why do you think that is so appealing to someone, whether that's a conspiracy or whether that's religion? Why do people latch on to something that is so totalizing? Mm -hmm. I think that that with conspiracies or religion or alien abduction or, or anything that is what I call mythic, right? In the work that I do, I talk about these things as living myths. I think that what they do is they are, they're explanatory, right? They, they, they comfort us psychologically because if we're picked up by the aliens, then we're special. Like aliens want me, man. (laughs) If, If I know about QAnon, if I'm one of the digital soldiers who is decoding the Q drops, right? If I am one of those people, then I have knowledge that other people don't have. Right. In both cases, I'm important. I'm special. You know, not only do conspiracies or other types of totalizing or mythic discourse do that, they also give us a sense of community because then I have an entire group of people who believe as I do who we believe in this thing that might not be super mainstream, that other people might ridicule. And in the ridicule of others comes a unification of us, right? And so we are persecuted. We are misunderstood. We, you know, you get me. And so it provides this whole kind of community. 
And then finally, in terms of, and Joseph Campbell talks about these multiple functions, the ways that myths function. Um, and then the broadest way that they function is cosmologically, right? And so it's like this whole understanding about like how the universe is and like the way the universe runs, the order of the universe, the, the laws of the universe. And so then the world makes sense. And when we live in a time where we have a global pandemic, where we have economic upheaval, when we have constant information and access to the lives of other people who are living their lives with very different principles and values than we might live, right? Causing us to question our own, right? Then we have to then think about when we have all those things going on, what do we want other than security, other than someone else to say to us, yes, you are exactly right. Don't sweat it. You are right. You are okay. It's that affirmation. Um, and I think conspiracy rhetoric can give it, alien abduction discourse can give it, religions can give it. And then I'm thinking that there might also be a flip side to it. And I'm, I don't know if you've thought about the same, but it might also provide some sense of instability or uncertainty. As in, I meant there could be a lot of paranoia surrounded around um, conspiracy and religion as well. You've talked about your experience, how you didn't seem to sort of fit into that, the criteria that God had on his checklist. Is that secure for someone that, you know, is concerned that they don't fit the criteria or is concerned about their well-being and their stature within a conspiracy and within religion? Right. No, it's not. Yeah. That's exactly right. Which is why the Catholic faith didn't and doesn't work for me. Right. Because right. I don't feel like I belong because it doesn't give me a sense of well-being. It doesn't make me feel a part of. Um, and instead, I sought out other communities. Right? right. And so I do have other groups, recovery communities and um, friend groups, um, particularly with other women I have a bunch of different groups where I feel as though I do get those things, right? Where I do get the affirmation, like even some of my book clubs, that we get a sense of community, personal importance, and all of those kind of things. Right. But I think that what happens is what we see is when people do not feel a part of, they go somewhere where they do. Right. And I, I would argue that in contemporary American politics today, people do not feel a part of mainstream politics. Some people do not feel a part of mainstream politics. And so we have increasing polarization and people joining much more radicalized groups because that's where they feel heard. So in this theme of community and um, where you feel excluded and where you feel included, um, can you talk a little bit about what keeps you going um, in hearing a little bit about your upbringing? There's been times in which you've been actively kind of removed from the conversation and then brought in by other people. How do you feel like having members of community around you and having aspiration motivates you and, and grounds you? That's a really good question. I, I think... Um... When I was younger, like when I was y'all's age, um, I, I, I don't think I ever could have put a question like that together. So kudos <laughs> to you both. I was, when I was your age, and I, and I, I don't think I was unique, uh, I was really reactive 
I was very much unaware of my own agency and my own power in the world. I definitely thought that other people did things to me. I thought that people made me feel certain ways. And I thought that people did things at me, you know? Um, and I don't know why that is. I just did. And I can still get like that today. I can get really negative and I could think that, you know, I'm never going to get a break and the world is against me and I have all this grading and I'm not appreciated, all this kind of self-pity stuff. Um, but I think that that what I do now and what I got somewhere along the way in these different communities, these spiritual communities, I got a sense of um, kind of traveling together and the recognition that there are people who want to grow and be healthy physically, emotionally, and spiritually. And, and when I found my people, and I have like a tribe of people around me who are just similarly oriented. And when I found those people, then we started talking about what we do right? And what we want and, and how we get what we want. And, and so a lot of it is just, you know, in the morning, every morning at 630 in the morning, I have this little zoom group of people who get on my zoom and we read a meditation. And sometimes it's a religious meditation. Sometimes it's kind of a secular meditation, all kinds of different meditations. And we just read one of these things that is directive. And they always say it's all the same stuff that's on Instagram, all the little Instagram posts that you see, you know, don't look back, you're not going that way and speak your truth, even if your voice shakes and you are enough, you know, it's all that kind of stuff. But the five or six of us every morning will just kind of be like, yeah, I really needed to hear this today because I have a department meeting and I'm afraid to ask for this in my department meeting because I'm afraid my colleagues aren't going to agree or whatever. Um, and, and other people in that group can affirm how others are feeling, how we're feeling. And I think just in doing that practice, having a collective practice of spiritual stuff, like a, a practice of collective spiritual experience, it, um, it helps us to, it helps me to start my day right, right? Like I start my day every day pretty positive. Like it's not negative. I'm not worried about things. I'm not afraid of things because worrying does nothing but waste time. And so when I get into that mindset, then I can move forward in a more positive way. So, um, you know, and then sometime in the afternoon, I try to kind of review my day and see where I'm at because I think emotionally we all just sometimes it's like a tube of toothpaste that someone has slid up the side. You know, you just start oozing out the wrong way. And it's really easy for it to happen if you're not paying attention. So the point is, long answer short, sorry about this, was that when I was growing up, I didn't realize that I was in charge of all that. And today I see I have absolute power over my attitude and how I approach the day. Now, obviously, there's a ton of privilege inherent in that. But nonetheless, that's where I'm at today. I think practices of mindfulness and gratitude are 
are not only important like personally, but um, communally. It definitely shows everyone that you're working with, like what you're bringing to the table or what your position is. Um, and I know when we spoke to you earlier, you um, do have your own routine. Um, so do you mind sharing something that you do daily um, on your own, maybe a morning routine that you do for gratitude or mindfulness? Sure. So every morning when I get up, um, I, like I said, I read something spiritual and then I make a gratitude list every single day of 10 things. And I say, thank you. I say, thank you to the universe for them rather than I am grateful for. Um, so, uh, I do that gratitude list and then I also meditate every day. And so sometimes it's five or six minutes. Sometimes it's 20 minutes, right? Depending on where my head is at when, and when I fall off the meditation bandwagon, which I do often, then I go back to like guided meditations because they're kind of like the way that I get back to it, you know? And I just try to, I mean, I think that, that gratitude, meditation and prayer, all of those things, they're called practices, right? We have a meditation mm -hmm. practice. It's because we have to keep trying to do it. It's, you know, it's not like a meditation finished product. It's a meditation practice. So they have to just keep doing it. And so I do all those things every day. Yeah, thank you for reminding us of that and just sharing some of the things that you do. I think it'll be really helpful um, for myself and other people. Um, you've talked about um, being in recovery and the community around recovery. Would you mind speaking a little bit about um, the experience of being in recovery and addiction support on campus? Mm. Ways that, yeah. <laughs> this is like my thing now. Um, so, so, um, I've been in recovery for almost 30 years and, and when I first got to Bates, I didn't tell anyone that I was in recovery. Um, and I didn't see anyone else on campus who was in recovery and I didn't ever hear of anyone. And so I was just kind of on the DL with it because a lot of people have a lot of prejudice against alcoholics and drug addicts and and what it means and and what we've done and who we are and our character you know and there's a lot of stigma around that sometimes still and so i didn't necessarily tell everyone tell anyone and then you know once i got tenure i felt a little bit better and i would start to tell some people and and um and now i've been promoted to full so now i just say it all <laughs> and um i've obviously gotten more confident about it and and it's also just become more and more important. I mean, with the pandemic, the um, recovery communities were ravaged, right? Like halfway houses and and homeless shelters were shut down. Um, the degree to which people couldn't get uh, methadone or Suboxone or whatever during the pandemic was was really bad. And and um, addiction rates and alcoholism rates went through the roof. So it's something that's very much on my head and my heart. And in terms of at Bates, you know, I, the more I speak out about it, the more I talk about it, I'll say it all the time in my classes now that I am a person in recovery. You know, I don't drink, I don't do drugs. I used to, and now I don't, you know, and, and if you have questions about it, come see me. And invariably students do, you know, students and staff have come to me and talked to me kind of about what they're doing and and what maybe it's not a good idea or maybe they're not really liking the way they feel about how much they're drinking or other things they're doing and and um 
And that's been really cool, right? Because a really big part of being in recovery is being able to give back. I mean, when I, when I first got sober, I didn't know how to stay sober. I didn't know how to do things. I didn't know how to be social. I was 23 years old and I was in college. How do you navigate college and not drink? I didn't know how one would do that. Um, and there were people who showed me, you know, there were other sober people who were in college or just out who would be, who would tell me, look, we can go to this concert and you can actually not get high and still go. And I'd be like, oh, wow, how novel an idea. And so people did it for me. And I know that trying to, trying to quit anything like that by yourself, trying to, trying to do anything, trying to make any change in your life by yourself is really hard. And, and so I've always wanted a, a kind of a recovery meeting on campus and Last year there was an attempt and it met, I guess, a few times. And I think this year we're gonna try to do something again. And you know, it's not only about alcohol and drugs because basically I think that most addictions have a lot to do with the fact that people just don't feel comfortable, right? For, for whatever reason, trauma or other reasons, they don't feel comfortable. And so, so we drink or we do drugs or we eat or we purge or we cut ourselves or we have a lot of sex or we, whatever, you know, we do things to try to change how we feel. And, and so I think that, especially on a college campus post pandemic, uh, when everybody is a little unsure about what they're doing and how much of anything they should be doing and balance generally, I'd, I think it would probably be a good idea. So hopefully one will be coming to a area near you soon. Thank you so much for one um, providing your support to the community and talking about your experience. Do you know or have any other maybe um, little advice of resources for those who are struggling with addiction or abusive relationships or whatever it may be? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think that the support that we have at Bates and the time that I have been at Bates, the degree to which Bates College has absolutely stepped up and taken drinking, abusive relationships, drug use, eating disorders, all of it um, out of the shadows, right? And and put it front and center as part of the health and wellness of our community. I think that's absolutely admirable. Um, and so we do, we have CAPS, you know, where they have a lot of programming. I know that the Dean of Students Office, I don't know who you know, the chart in terms of like who does what, I don't understand that entirely, but I know that the Dean of Students does a ton of programming. So I think that there are a lot of different places where spaces for small communities and small, you know, mutual aid networks or support groups, I think there are a lot of those happening around campus. Yeah. And I think, you know, it is important for Bates communities to in some way organize around rehabilitation. And thank you so much for, you know, not only recognizing that alcohol and like drug addiction is addiction, but there are so many other addictions that come in different forms and that are maybe less stigmatized and less shamed, but uh, the root problem might be the same. And that root problem might be discomfort or anxiety and people are trying to, to escape and, there's not that much attention on that that issue and there's more focus on on the addiction itself. 
Um, mm-hmm. But I think that that's really important to recognize. Um, well, and, and also, yeah. I will, I'll say that um, many people are affected who aren't necessarily the alcoholic or the addict or the person in the abusive relationship. Right. right? Like when we, and especially in college, where y'all have roommates and you get all this extensive network of friends, y'all know someone who's going through something. Right. And I think being a support person for someone else who is going through that kind of thing is really difficult. And like, you need support. And like, we all need support when we have a friend who's going through it, you know, to realize like, what is my role and how supportive can I be? And how do I feel about this? And how do I stand up for myself? And how do I say no? Or how do I say yes? Or how do I say I'm afraid for you? And so I think that it's not only people who are directly affected directly involved but also the people that they touch right the the people that are affected by them and and do you have any tips for someone that might be trying to support a friend or a family member and let's say that this this friend um is perhaps not even acknowledging that they do have a problem but they have people around them that do care about them and support them who are deeply affected how Mm. do we i guess balance self-care and self-advocate for ourselves while also advocating for this friend or family member? Yeah, I don't, I don't, unfortunately, I don't think there's any one right answer, right? I think every single, every single situation is, is going to be different. But I know that one of the, I used to be in some really unhealthy relationships too. And I know that um, one of the things that I had to learn was that I needed to love myself one ounce more than I loved them, you know, because I would sacrifice myself, my health, my money, my space, my time for them to my own detriment. And I think that that's not healthy. And so, um, but I don't know. I think that the, I guess if I had to give one piece of advice, it would be don't do it alone. Don't do it alone. Because when I am thinking, when I am in that space, and thinking about it it's not they're not healthy thoughts usually for me yeah yeah thank you so much for talking about that and just giving both us personally and the wider audience that advice um i think you've talked a lot about um ways in which you take care of yourself and ways in which you try and take care of others but um how what would you say brings you hope and kind of keeps you going in these moments of pain Oh, I think I'm mostly hope and not a whole heck of a lot of pain anymore. Um, I, I feel like my life is bonus right now. Truthfully, I feel like, you know, what I got is definitely mercy and not justice. Um, I think that what gives me hope is that people are genuinely, um, kind at least at Bates, the the students that I've dealt with, they're like, they want to learn and they're open-minded and they're kind. And so I think that, you know, that's, that's a beginning. I also think I see a lot of hope in my students who are really politically agitated and, and irritated and activated, you know, and that gives me hope because I think that, um, I think that all that stuff is important. I think that it's important that people find their individual calling 
and kind of follow it daily. Um, and the fact that people are still doing it does give me hope. That's beautiful. You've talked about hindsight a bit and how um, maybe the college or or high school you might not have imagined yourself to be where you are today. Um, but do you have any aspirations as of now? And what do you think your life will look like in maybe, let's say, 10 years? And what do you want it to look like? Who do you aspire to be? I don't know. And I think I need to write it down. Like there have been a couple of times in my life where I've written down, like, where do I want to be in five years or 10 years? And I put it in an envelope and stuff. And I've done it like with friends. And then 10 years from yeah, now, yeah. we open up the envelopes and all that kind of stuff. And when I think about now, like I have uh, um, a 17-year-old and a 20-year-old. So my 20-year-old's already in school and the 17-year-old will be leaving next year to go to school. So I have this whole empty nest and I am not at all upset about this empty nest that I am now going to have. <laughs> and in terms of the possibility of what I can do, I really do feel like it's somewhat limitless. Thank you so much for coming on and sharing all of these stories. Um, I know you've given us a lot of advice already, but um, just to in a kind of closing us out, do you think you could give us um, one piece of advice that would be your token advice to get? I think if I had to give one piece of advice to students, I would say treat yourself the way you would treat your best friend. Because in my experience, y'all are much nicer to each other than you are to yourselves. And so I'd like to see you be as good to yourselves as you are to people you love. Oh, that's beautiful. <laughs> Thank you so much. You've yeah. touched some hearts today. Um, that was Professor Stephanie Keller-Romano. Thank you so much for joining us. And hopefully more students will reach out to you if they sort of resonated with what you've said. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, my email is skellley at bates.edu. And if you are uncomfortable with the way you're drinking or if you're using drugs and or love someone who is, reach out and hopefully I can get you connected. We'll figure out who the important people are to get connected to. Thank you to the Multifaith Fellows, Multifaith Chaplain Brittany Longsdorf, Raymond Clothier, the Associate Multifaith Chaplain, Samantha McCune, our Program Coordinator, and Stephanie Kelly Romano for sharing her story with us. For more information about resources for recovery on campus, please email multifaithchaplaincy at bates.edu. Thanks for listening. Until next time.